This is a crowd podcast. Welcome to Captains with me, Sam Warburton. This is the podcast where I compare notes, swap stories, and share leadership insights with some of the biggest names in sport. I was still deeply lost in my own issues whilst trying to captain a team. And as a result, happy to say I was not a good captain. For me, leadership is not to lose sight that it's not supposed to last forever. So you don't want to be hanging on to something because your ego says it feels good. Weak leaders love weak people around them. What motivates and excites people is passion. You have to give a shit about what you're doing. To get that news was heartbreaking, to be honest. Yes, you got to have the intensity, but you can't flip over into anxiety. When it flips over into anxiety, you've got a problem. Hi everyone, thanks again for listening. I said back at the start of Captains that I wanted to share some of my leadership insights with you, but in reality, I've spent the entire series learning from my brilliant guests. There's been a great mix of sport and anecdotes and leadership lessons, so in this episode, I'll share some of my favourite moments and reflect a little bit on our conversations. I want to go back to episode one where I caught up with an old friend and rival, former England rugby captain, Chris Robshaw. The key theme here was resilience, how negative moments can be turned into positives. Chris spoke really honestly, reflected on England's exit from the 2015 World Cup, when he was the focal point for a lot of the criticism. What would be some of the lows then of being England captain? Yeah, look, in in all honesty, it was that World Cup. The 2015 World Cup, where obviously we'd gone in, and I always say that World Cup was the highest point I've ever had in England shirt, leading the team at Twickenham, opening the ceremony, all that kind of thousands of people there as we got off the bus, all that kind of stuff. To two weeks later, a decision I had to make went wrong, losing to you guys, to then going to Australia, losing against that, having a press conference after. I remember crossing paths with you and you and Warren, as you guys came out, and we were obviously you guys were happy, and we were kind of went in myself and Stuart, and the following week as well, similar with Checker, and I think it was Hooper at the time. We were ghosts. We we were ghosts, kind of going in, and we were we were very much lambs for the slaughter. You remember how big that room was? A hundred, two hundred, kind yeah, of media yeah. outlets, cameras flashing, being heckled, all that kind of stuff. And and that for me was the darkest I ever got. I was dead behind the eyes for a long, long time. I was going through the motions. I was being written about in the front and back of papers. Um, I never thought I'd play for England again, let alone captain them again. To to do all that was horrendous. And I I remember kind of waking up. That was the darkest it that ever got. And it put huge pressure on my family, my loved ones, my friends, and all that kind of stuff. And what was really important for me at that point was that my friends and family were brilliant. But they hadn't experienced what it was like. And you know what it's like when you go through that. You're in a fog. You, you can't see clear. You think everyone's looking at you and scrutinise you and, and all that kind of stuff. And I remember after we lost to Australia, and I had an email from Sean Fitzpatrick that just said, look, nothing anyone can do or say at this point is going to make you feel better. But a sun will come up again. It might not be tomorrow. It might not be next week. It might not even be next month. But it will come up again and you will be okay. And I think with a lot of these things, sometimes you just need a bit of time. You need a bit of time to go through things. Yeah. You need to grieve. You need to mourn. And I did. And I remember we actually, when we played you guys at Twickenham, it was the first game back in the Six Nations. Again, we had been on the road twice. It was a middle game. 
And as you can imagine, everything was coming up about that game. The emotions, there yeah. was still a lot of the squad who were involved in that game. It was all, is it about revenge? And of course, behind closed doors, it was for us. It was all about revenge and making amends and all that kind of stuff. And we just about won. And I think George North literally merely had stepped on the line and luckily we escaped. We won, won a game and we're doing a lap of honour that game. And I just broke down in tears. I just broke down in tears and I, I just had to go in and change it. I couldn't, I didn't want people to see me. I, I didn't deal with it in the right way. I went and changed it and I literally cried for about 15 minutes. And I remember a lot of the England side. It's a just, relief. Really, exactly. It just, came, it just came out. It just came out of me. Relief, yeah. And I remember a lot of the England guys and Farrell and Haskell and all the, a lot of the guys who'd been there and done it saying we didn't realise how much it actually affected you because I didn't share it. I bottled it all up. I didn't deal with it in the right way. And it was almost like a bit of a bit of closure. And of course, we then went to Australia and won that series in the summer, which was kind of a yeah. bit of closure towards that year. But yeah, that was that was definitely the toughest period I've had as a as a player in, in my whole professional career. What was going through your mind when you were walking towards those press conferences in the moments after those losses to Wales and Australia? Yeah, they they were they were some of the toughest things I had to do, especially the the Australia one because that was we were out. I remember just thinking, just don't cry in front of them. Just kind of just hold it together. Just just you and Stuart just need to get through this. It was it was horrendous. It was honestly it was the toughest thing in my professional career, go going and doing that press conference and and and, and that was you had no feelings. You you had nothing. You had nothing to give. And and when people say and I was, I was I was dead. I see I see photos of myself in that period not just that moment but in that kind of month or six weeks eight weeks after and I don't even I don't recognize myself I don't recognize my eyes you you look very very different uh, and then that unfortunately was the start of that moment I remember when I got sent off and when you say it's because they're quite close parallels and um we were in New Zealand so obviously I was on the other side of the world so Twitter had only just kicked off and obviously I was sensible enough not to go on Twitter so you're kind of away from it all I came home and there was this program on um, on the BBC, and it was showing like it was nine o'clock in the morning or eight thirty in the morning. And it showed our national stadium with sixty five thousand people in watching us. And my parents were like, oh, let's watch it. So I went over the house and I was like, oh no, no, I don't want to watch this because they were still proud of the fact that mm. you know Captain Wales was semi final. But I watched this. I was watching it, you know, like unwillingly, but I watched it. And then it showed everyone's reaction when I got sent off, and it showed the camera sort of panned down. It showed the silence across the stadium. And then I remember watching it, and I did the same. I was in my lounge, my parents' house, in their lounge, and I remember I just burst out crying, and I had to leave the room, because I suddenly it was just like, it dawned on me, like, what I did, uh, and, and how bad it was, and what, you know, what, how I cost Wales so so costly in a World Cup. But then I had, you were on about when the fog lifted. My, my fog lifted about a month later when I was driving to training. I got a, And I was close to my granddad. And I was driving to training and I looked down at a traffic light. My phone lit up and it was my dad who texted me and he just said, granddad's died. And I spent like every Friday night with my granddad growing up and, you know, we used to watch Super League with him and boxing. And I remember going in to see him, you know, every day before he went and eventually he passed away. And then I did an interview and they asked me about the red card and it was a bit like dark, but I just said, well, I lost my granddad this morning and it made me realise there's more important things in life to worry about than a game of rugby. Even though I'm getting it's probably one of the most controversial things that's happened in World Cup history. 
family and health is way more important. And that's when almost the fog lifted off me. Even though I was in another separate fog, so I lost my granddad, suddenly sports and the perspective of losing a family member, which I was lucky I hadn't lost a family member, not not in a, at a, an age where I was aware of what was going on. So I'm quite lucky to only experience that at 22, 23 with my granddad. But that kind of put it in perspective for me. Was there a moment after that World Cup where you could feel the fog lift or your perspective had, had finally changed? I think in terms of that that instant fog was... I remember we went to Exeter again. It was probably about eight weeks after. And we played down there and our head coach, John Kingston at the time, and just said, look, enough's enough. We know it's terrible. We know it's horrendous. We've been here for you. We're here for you, but we need you now. And I just thought, you know what it is. Like, I still wasn't quite back, but I was like, you know what, I need to... I'm now impacting others. I'm impacting the rest of my team. And I, I always wanted to be a team person, a team first, all that kind of stuff. And I'd have gone against that sub, well, subconsciously. And that was a massive moment for me. And I, I actually played really well. It was the best game I, pl- I played kind of probably since since the World Cup and stuff. And sometimes you need hard truths. Yeah. He, he could see I'd had my grieving, I'd had my moment... But in terms of proper closure, it's something I'll always have. But then we went to Australia that summer. We won our first game. The second game was my 50th cap. Uh, We ended up winning an incredible game in in Melbourne in the rain. I think we won like 15-8 or something. Defensive efforts. I was mad in a match. And and Jason Leonard, a good friend of mine, presented me with my silver cap. With England, you get a little silver cap when you get to 50 appearances. And all the boys just chanted my name in the change room. We had beers and we just celebrated. And you, you know what? I was like... This, this is it. I'm kind of clear now. Uh, and like I said, it's, it is something that will always be part of me and I won't always speak about it with World Cups and stuff. But for me, that moment was the, the fog has gone. That's nice. And I was, I was so... Because again, it was, it was such big moments against you guys in the Six Nations and of course them who, who were the team that ended it. So to go there and beat them 3-0 in a series and to win my 50th there and all that kind of stuff was... And see how pleased the guys were for me as well. Uh, was just incredible. As we're wrapping up now, you've obviously gone through so much. If a young Chris Robshaw, you know, you're, you're a coach now, imagine hypothetically you're a coach now with Queen's Academy and there's a young Chris Robshaw walks through the door and goes, Chris, what advice would you give me about captaincy? What would you give him? When I think to, and I speak to youngsters now, I say the, the biggest thing that you need to have is resilience. For me, it's you're, you're going to have some incredible times, but unfortunately, there's going to be some tough and testing times along the way. And there's there's no player and there's no sports person who's gone far without setbacks. And and I, I had a, a fantastic saying from Justin Langer, obviously the Australian cricketer, and like I said, I, I like to listen to podcasts and stuff. And he said, in, in tough times, you need good people around you and you just need to hang on in there. And, and that's what it is a lot of the time. You just need to hang on in there because the tough times do pass and you need to make sure you're still around, you're still in a good place and all that kind of stuff to make sure that when they pass, you're ready to kind of keep on going. So, yeah, I'd say to a younger myself, like, resilience is key. Like, work hard, enjoy the moments. But when you go through those tough times, just just hang on in there because they will pass and there will be good times again. I love that chat with Chris. He's a great pro and dealing with disappointment is something we all have to do. His point on surrounding yourself with good people and having that resilience to hang in there is so important. On a similar theme, Man City captain Steph Horton spoke about her disappointment on not being selected for England's historic Euro win in 2022. Steph helped lead the growth of the women's game over the last decade, but ultimately wasn't involved in the Lionesses' success at Wembley. 
how hard or, or easy was it to watch that 2022? And do you feel that you can take any credit for the foundation blocks that you put in for the decades before that? Um, it was hard. It was it was a hard watch, and I think because I was my whole rehab was revolved around making that Euro squad, and you kind of pushing boundaries, you're pushing limits, you're pushing time scales because. I'm not going to not do that because I love playing for my country and I wanted to be there and I feel as though I could have an influence within the squad and whether that might not be from playing, but especially with my experience of tournaments over the last few years, um, I feel as though I could have had a positive effect, but it wasn't meant to be. But I think them first three or four weeks, I went straight on holiday when I knew I wasn't going. I was like, we need to get out of England. I need to just get away. I need to be with my family. Obviously, then you come back and the Euro hypes everywhere. Obviously, Manchester was one of the host cities in the Euros. So it's not as if when I'm at home, I can kind of escape it. So yeah. I kind of just said to myself, I'm going to have to embrace it a little bit. Yeah. And of course, I supported the girls. I mean, I watched every single game. There was my Man City teammates that were there. That There was there was a lot of them. My best friend was playing. So, of course, we want them to win. And to see them win was absolutely amazing. And... I mean, I was the first to probably congratulate everybody. Nice. We had all the England photos up in the, the changing room when all the girls came back for pre-season after their holidays. So we had, it was important to celebrate that success because you are proud of your friends. But I think in terms of looking back on the influence I've had probably on that win, I don't think I can do that yet. I really don't. And I know a lot of people are like, why haven't you had your name within that win? And I'm like, well, because I'm still a player and maybe when I do retire, I can look back and know that I know that I made positive changes for the women's game and for young girls growing up and, and had that influence over them tournaments, which led us to a to a massive win. But at this moment, I can't just settle. I just need to keep playing what I'm doing, just keep focused on my football and maybe one day get a shot at playing for England again, which would be the dream. But at this moment in time, it's just all about trying to play for Manchester City. It's a hard place to be injured. And um, I remember coming back when I had like a sort of sabbatical, kind of six to 12 months, I was trying to come back from injury. And I do remember, and I, and I laugh when I read this quote you said, because I thought of myself, and, and you said, um, I must have been the shittest wife ever. And I, and I laugh <laughs> because I remember thinking at one point, I had to sort of smack myself oh. across the face, but maybe about three months have gone by. And I remember thinking, if I stayed like this forever there's no way my wife will stay with me because I was so oh, so driven to get back. So like everything, you, your life revolves around getting back. What sort of habits were you referring to when you said that? What did you have to put yourself through? Because for us sports people, it's quite normal, the injury things. But I guess people outside of pro sport don't appreciate maybe the sacrifice that you go mm -hmm. through. What were you referring to when you said you were the, the shittest wife ever, which I'm sure you weren't. But <laughs> I just like to know what's going through your mind. I just... I just think like a normal day, like did I put time aside to be a normal person and be with Stephen and to have them two or three hours where we could go and do something. But my whole day was revolved around training. It was either revolving around my rehab exercises. So a typical day would be, I would get up at half six in the morning. I would get on the bike in my conservatory, in my little homemade gym that I've got. I would do a walk bike session. I'd get a shower. I'd quickly get some breakfast. I'd then say bye, I'd drive to crew, I'd spend probably five, six hours at crew with a physio, doing my rehab exercises, my strengthening, maybe a pitch session. 
I'd come back, I'd be like, okay, that's not enough for me. I need to do another session. So I would do upper body conditioning just to try and save my legs. I would just do anything I possibly could. Then it would be ice bath. Then it would be recovery pumps. And I'm thinking, oh my God, this is so attractive. You must be thinking, oh my God, like what is going on? But I think with Stephen having been a footballer himself, I think he understood that I had to sacrifice something to try and make this goal that I thought was realistic but in hindsight was probably never going to be realistic and I needed just to give it everything. And I sit now and I'm thinking, I couldn't have done any more. It was what it was and I sacrificed a lot. I sacrificed not being a club to go and do my rehab away from here. I sacrificed family time, but I would never change that because ultimately I love the sport and I love playing football, but yeah, I probably still was the shittest wife. You would never probably admit that, but I probably was. <laughs> <laughs> Now these may sound like negative topics, but it's easy to lead when things are going well. What sets the great captains apart is how you respond when things get on top of you. The legacy of that Euros win will surely inspire the next generation of kids. And legacy was a really interesting topic that came up a lot when chatting to former England netball captain Serena Guthrie. She picked it as one of her four traits on her captain's compass. So yeah, de well, definitely lead by example. That's like, that's yeah. my number one. Me too. And yeah, would never that would never change. The second one, lead with your heart. So that links to my values as a person and making sure that that is never compromised. The third one would be, it's, it's fun. Nice. I always take that into my leadership philosophy. If I'm not enjoying it, you're not going to get the best out of me. I'm mm, definitely not a structured person in that sense. I'm very intuition-based, always have been as a player and am as, as a human being. So if, if it doesn't feel good, then you know I'm not going to get the best out of myself. And then the last one, and this is what drives me now as well as a, as a human being, is that legacy side of things. So it's that humbling side to sport that you have the opportunity to to get, I suppose, through whether it's being a role model or leaving your dress in a better place or tending that spot for as long as you can and leaving it in a, in a space that is easy for someone else to pick up. That's always been really important for me because I believe, you know, for me, leadership is, like, again, banging on about it should be a privilege and it is a privilege and not to lose sight that it's not supposed to last forever. So you don't want to be hanging on to something because your ego says it feels good or you like the shiny side to the role. It's it's about ensuring that you're tending that spot to the best of your ability and enabling others to be able to step into it as well. And that's kind of what I wanted my legacy to be as a leader. And that's why I delegated, actually. So there was method behind the madness, girls. For, for, <laughs> if anyone does listen to this podcast, you know, like, you know, I, 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 I did want people to feel like they could have an impact on the team if I wasn't there. That, that for me, was the most important thing. That's such a selfless way of thinking about the role of a captain and a great question to ask yourself. Is the foundation you're laying making other people's roles easier? Talking of legacy, that word is synonymous with London 2012, and it was great catching up with Seb Coe, the man responsible for delivering those Olympics. Taking decisions as a leader that might invite criticism can be tough, but as mentioned already, surrounding yourself with a strong team and believing in what you are doing is key to helping you through. If you do have a leadership role, then it's a, sometimes it's a lonely place. Mm. And you've got, you know, you have to make difficult decisions. We've made tough decisions. And sometimes they've not been particularly popular. 
You know, we were the first and only sports governing body to ban Russia for doping back in 2015. Yeah, I remember that. You know, I, didn't, I wasn't getting too many Christmas <laughs> cards from the IOC on that particular one. But they weren't always popular decisions to take, and sometimes that's a bit of a lonely old place. And I think one of those destinations on the compass, and, I, and again, I learned that probably from my dad, that is don't ever ask people to do something you're not prepared to do yourself. And sometimes you just do occasionally have to take one for the team. On those difficult decisions, did you like making those decisions or did you find it quite uncomfortable? Or did you get used to it? Rarely do you make these decisions unilaterally. You have to sit and have people around you that are prepared to give you their advice. And you want people around you. Look, weak leaders love weak people around them. Yeah, they don't that's want a good challenged. one. Out, yeah. I am absolutely the other, other way around. I don't want a team that sits there saying, oh, yeah, great, President, what a wonderful idea. If they're sitting there, you know, two minutes later as they've left your office saying, what is this guy smoking? <laughs> So it's it's really important that you have people that are prepared to sit down in front of you and say, I think you've got this wrong. Yeah. Or, look, I think there may be a better way of doing it. I don't mind that at all. It's I guess it goes back to the craving criticism. You don't mind. And, and apart from anything else, when you get people doing that, you've, you actually feel, you do feel comfortable that they're bought into the project, they've, they've engaged with it. So um, I don't... I don't mind that at all, and but ultimately, it's not a bad way of approaching it, which is really do what you think is right. You know, you don't wake up in the morning thinking, oh, I've trimmed here, or I've done it because I've bowed to public pressure, or I've done it. You've, you've just got to soldier on sometimes. And, and, and understand, I think good leaders understand that they're probably making decisions now that maybe only their successors are going to see the impact of, but actually the, there, there are decisions you have to make that are going to be for the long haul and recognise that actually you're probably going to take the criticism. Being a first, a first mover is not always easy. I mean, you know what it's like. Stepping away from the herd is, is not always comfortable. I absolutely love that line. Weak leaders love weak people around them. Definitely quoted the series for me. Okay, that seems like a good place for a break. I'll be back after these ads. Welcome back to Captains. In this episode, I'm looking back at some of my favourite conversations from Series 1. There's been recurring themes and thoughts that practically all our guests had, one of which is about them being introverts growing up. On that, I got an email here from listener called Robin, who says... Good afternoon. Thank you so much for your podcast. It brightens up my Monday morning when I see the new episode. I found it so refreshing to hear so many guests identify as introverts. This was me growing up as well. Cricket is my sport. I found it the best sport to express myself without having to raise my voice. Over time and through coaching, I've learned to be more outgoing when I need to be. I've even grown to like that person, but it's more a work persona and still doesn't come naturally to me elsewhere. Keep up the great work and thanks for giving introverts some cheer. That's really nice, actually. Thanks again for getting in touch, Robin, and you're not alone in sharing that thought. I think it's a misconception that leaders are hugely confident and totally sure of themselves. In my experience, it's almost always the opposite. We've had guests from all kinds of different sports on captains. Growing up, I used to love watching Super League with my granddad, and it was great catching up with Bradford Bulls and Leeds Rhinos icon Jamie Peacock. Jamie has a really clear approach to leadership, focusing on honesty, work ethic, and being true to your word. 
He does a lot of leadership talks these days, so I asked him what has he taken from his playing career into what he does now. I think I think the most probably transferable skill is self-discipline, but that mm. ability to deliver on, on on your word, and I think that is something that delivering on on, on your word. I, I think it's a kind of superpower, you know, to like always always do what you say you're going to do, and I think doing that as a player under a lot of fatigue and, and under a lot of pressure, being able to deliver on your word to your teammates. You, you'll know, Sam, that creates trust from your teammates in you, doesn't it? You know, if they know you'll turn up and do what you say you're going to do, regardless of opposition fatigue, um, however you feel. So then there's no reason why you can't do that in normal day-to-day -day life. And I think it's a skill a lot of people lack in day-to-day -day life. That's the one thing I found frustrate, most frustrating uh, when I left the playing professional rugby league is getting into the real word. Um, most people don't really deliver on the word or they find it a real challenge to deliver on the word. So for me, I thought this is something I'm going to keep doing and it's going to stand me out. So if I say something's going to get done, it's going to get done. It feels intrinsically important to me to, to do that. I don't think it comes from being let down by anybody or not. And it may come from when I first got into the professional team, I knew if I delivered on my word to the senior professionals on what they wanted me to do, I'd probably stay in the team and win their respect. Delivering on your word to yourself gives yourself high standards. I'd love to know what would be on, on your leadership campus. First of all, I love this, Sam. I think this is a great, great idea. I wish someone had given me this in, during my career. I think, I think it's outstanding <laughs> just to kind of like really just focus down. you yeah yeah what what the things that are what's important right mm. you know ignore the noise what's important so you know for me i probably the, the first thing would be having integrity uh, i think having integrity mm. in, in what i do and that means in what i do on the pitch what i do for my teammates and what i do for the team there's no right way to do the wrong thing and i think that's something I'll stand by and will not be compromised on, on, on that one. Yeah, it comes up a lot. It's a good one. The next one, I think you've had this one before, but it's so true, is authenticity. you just got to be... Your, yeah. Yeah, you just got to be yourself, right? you just got to be yourself with your strengths and with, with your weaknesses and frailties because... I think your weakness and frailties are what bond you with people. I think no one's perfect and people like a flawed leader. People like the, your flaws with it. And I think with integrity and authenticity, if you don't have integrity and don't have, have authenticity, if you want to be somebody else, you, know, you just lose trust in the group. And trust is the biggest thing, I, I think, in, in leaders. Because if you think, you know, if you lose trust in somebody, that bridge is really hard to build again. And an easy way to burn trust is... Don't have integrity and don't be authentic, right? And they're central for me. I won't compromise on them. And then I think around that, it's, it's having compassion, all right? Having some compassion and empathy and understanding that everyone's different and everyone brings different things. That's something I've massively had to work on, you know, throughout my career. I probably got it wrong a few times early on in my career, but as I grew older, I understood how important it is that everyone's different. I'm working through that emotion and empathy people have got. Then, then my final would be just having some passion. Yeah. You know, I, I just think you have to have, you, you, you have to give a shit about what you're doing. And <laughs> care. You, yeah, you, you just do. Do though, don't you? Because you think, I, I, I think, you know, what motivates and excites people is passion towards the cause and passion in, in, in what you're doing. And, and I think passion is a really transferable emotion across a group. It can like shoot across a room if you're really passionate about something. So I think as a, as a leader, you do need that. You need that passion about what you're doing. I'd have loved to have played with Jamie and thought his captain's compass was brilliant. Integrity, compassion, 
authenticity and passion, four great traits. I've got an email here from a listener, Dave Norman, about that episode. He says, Afternoon, folks. I've just listened to the Jamie Peacock episode and I found a great deal in there that resonates with me. I've taken over as chair of Wolverhampton and Bilson Athletics Club and I'm trying to work hard to turn around the situation to make it more positive and make the club successful. We've been great in the past and produced Olympians. I couldn't agree more about having integrity and being authentic makes a massive difference. Saying you'll do something and doing it carries a lot of weight but so does not being afraid of getting it wrong and admitting when you've got it wrong, being human. Above all, though, it's about having that passion. As Jamie says, giving a shit. If you care, then it prompts others to care too. Thanks for that, Dave. It's great that so many of you are taking learnings from these episodes. Please keep your messages coming on email via captains at crowdnetwork.co.uk or on social media using the hashtag captainspod. I've mentioned it's been great getting your messages throughout the series, and this one from Michael Hardy really struck a chord. He wrote, I'm a huge Leicester City fan and also a big rugby fan. Yep, a tiger. I've absolutely loved, in particular, the Wes Morgan episode, but really enjoyed Kieran Reid too and the god and idol that is Martin O'Neill. But I'm emailing you on a personal note to say thank you. My wife passed away 18 months ago, aged 44, leaving me at 39 with two daughters aged 12 and 10 at the time. So I became the captain of my little team. The last 18 months have been a struggle and I'm starting to get somewhere now, I think. I've taken so much from your podcast about leadership and in particular the captain's compass and thinking about the four things I want to demonstrate to my daughters as our little team's leader. So I'm basically emailing to say thank you. I'll keep enjoying the podcast on my head clearing walks. I only wish you had played for Leicester and had been Irish. Michael, thanks so much for getting in touch. I genuinely never thought the podcast would be of help in that way, but I'm so pleased it is. As a father of young kids myself, you are the absolute inspiration, and I'm so glad that you can take something from listening each week. It's worth mentioning again that the guests I've had on are all elite athletes who have won pretty much everything there is to win. Yet the topics we talk about are universal, and some of the insights and thoughts they have can be applied to all of our lives. Okay, another email here from John Hale, who says, Evening Sam, just listened to Troy Deeney's pod and wow. Great interview and totally different person I thought he'd be. Thanks, John. I more or less said as much to Troy at the end of our conversation. He was so open about some of the troubles he's had in his life. I'm going to play to you now a section where Troy talks about some of those things and how that shaped his outlook in later life. When I was nine, nine years old, my, my dad, he's, he's passed away now and, and I've spoken about it before, but he, we, we, we had a domestic abuse in the house. He beat on me and my mum pretty bad. So that was one that shaped me, but, we, but it wasn't the, wasn't the physical abuse. And I've only just, just started getting my teeth done. So I broke my jaw, knocked my teeth around and all of that nonsense. What, when you were nine? Yeah, when I was nine. Yeah. So that, but that wasn't, the physical of that wasn't the problem. It was the, the embarrassment of having a social worker sit with me at school. Mm. The embarrassment of when I first saw my dad the next time, I pissed myself. In fear. Like I genuinely, yeah, fear, I pissed myself. Mm. But no problem saying it. Oh, fuck, he's there. And I just wet myself. Again, I'm nine years old at the time. I don't, don't know what it is to be a man at this point. I should be a kid. But I've been, I've been thrust into a life that was not meant for me. But okay, this has happened. And I'm from a, an Irish and, and a Jamaican background. You don't talk about things. Mm. Well, especially then. We probably do a little bit more now. And uh, I did see my mom cry once. I definitely, I know now she spent many a night once we'd gone to bed having a cry to herself. And like, no one ever asked, are you all right? Or how is he? Or it just, 
That happened. My dad went away for six months to jail, came back, and mate, the first day he came back, this, this is the God's honest truth, and if I'm lying, I'll die right now. We had a petrol station where I was from, and there's a bus stop right next to it. My mum's put petrol in. Dad's got off the bus with his, like, his, all his stuff from jail. And my mum's got want a lift. And he was like, what the fuck? Did, did this not happen then? Yeah. He gets in the car. Yeah. We dropped him back to my nan's. He said hello to us. He got out of the car. My mum was, what's up with you? And I pissed myself and I was embarrassed. Yeah. And it was like, that was, that was nine. And, and at that point, right, I'd never want that to happen again. That fear and that shame. And so then, you know, you fast forward... And then, but by the way, can I just say, a lot of people are going to go, oh, your dad was a bad guy and all that. My dad's still my hero. He's dead now. He's been dead 10 years. But was my hero. He's, he foundationally shaped who I am. He's the first man to put a football in, in my hands and taught me and took me around. It's all of these good, all the great things. But this happened, so we can't not talk about it. Do you get what I mean? Yeah. I was, I was going to say, would you, would you have been a footballer professionally if it wasn't for those early influences, do you think? Not at all. Not at all. My younger brother, so I'm 34, my brother's 30, and my brother's 30, and my he, he's so much better than me, so, at everything. And uh, he was at Aston Villa from the age of 6 to 20, and then when Dad died, he just, just went off the rails and, and left it alone. Still very good, still very talented. But what I used to do, which I never realised now until this day, was I used to go and watch training all the time and mirror what they were doing, just so that when we went back home, and we could play outside up against the garages, I could teach him. No, because at, at Villa, you had to do this, remember? So all of our eggs and all our was in his basket. He was going to be the one that was a footballer. We was all going to go on this journey with him. And that that was kind of how I used to see it. So I, as I say, like, we'll go back to being nine. I never really had a childhood from that moment onwards because my dad was gone. He was out of our lives in terms of... He still turned up, but he wasn't in the house. So my mum was working. I had to then pick up my brother and my sister from school from the age of nine, 10. And then at 11, I started working. So I started working as a glass collector with a local pub. So I'd do school, go play my football, go be a glass collector. Might earn 20 quid, 30 quid, whatever the night was. Get myself home for 11. School, do it all again every day. And like I say, long, long story short, fast forward a little bit. I'm, I'm 21 now. I've just moved from... from Warsaw, where I was playing, I was at £800 a week and I went to Watford and they gave me five grand a week. Now, socially, again, in my family, where every, most people were signing on at the time, went from there to whoop. Yeah. Now, Troy's the king, no one tells him anything. All my mates, uh, I say my mates, I've only got a couple left, but you know, all the crowd that I was with, Troy's a man, Troy's a man, Troy's a man, and I just turned into an arsehole. Troy's episode was really great. I thought it was inspiring how he spoke about the role he has at Birmingham now. Working with some of the younger guys in the squad, it's painfully obvious why he makes such a good leader. I love football and have enjoyed all of our football guests, but let's go back to rugby now. Growing up, even as a proud Welshman, I used to look up to the England team that won the World Cup in 2003. For me, they are one of the greatest Northern Hemisphere sides of all time. Speaking to Johnny Wilkinson was really reassuring. He, like me, is an intense, passionate guy. He spoke about stressing and worrying about his own performance, almost to the detriment of his own team. Considering his standing as an icon of world rugby, it was pretty humbling to hear him talk about how he struggled to cope at times. 
I was captain of many teams, whether it be Newcastle or England when I was growing up in like mid twenties. I'm fascinated by how you did it, mate. It's, it's it's incredible. I think it's you know, it's a huge, huge respect to you because I was still deeply lost in my own issues whilst trying to captain a team. And as a result, with uh, happy to say it, I was not a good captain in any way when I was a when I was younger. Not a good captain at all. I did my best and I led by example and the only thing that probably helped was the fact that I gave everything and I wouldn't lie down and other people may have found that mm. okay but I had no subtlety or the, none of the nuance none of the connection to players none of the feel it was just I was lost I'll go and do the coin toss the guys wouldn't see me before the game because I'd arrive go and do my kicking the ref would have to come out and find me to do the coin toss because I never went in because I was too busy kicking so he'd be like look can you please come in I'd be like just give me five yeah. he'd be like Get in, get your <laughs> ass in it now. All oh, right, come on then, coin toss, shake the guy's hand. Yeah, you're good, we'll have that end, whatever. I'm off out again. I'll come back in, I'll do the team talk, that was it. Now, I, I, I was self-absorbed. There was no way I had enough energy for anyone else. I had to do my own work on me yeah. before I could even think about a captain. Funnily enough, that parallel thing was as I went through my struggles, I was like, geez, my self-importance is moving away. And as it did, I was starting to realize there's other people around. And geez, nobody feels like they can be who they want to be near me they feel like they have to be who they have to be they're all told to respect me i'm not sure any of them do because i'm not a per I'm, I'm just not a necessarily a very open nice person to them and so you know as that journey paralleled i got to toulon like i said i just suddenly realized that i'm not a special someone i've got to get over that and the fact that i think i am is really destroying me and as you do that you're like geez i've just realized how much i like these guys <laughs> as you let go of that you're like you're great. <laughs> Whereas when you hold on to that, you're like, you're a threat to me. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're, you're a threat to me. When I let go of my self-importance, I'm like, I love you. I, I mean, I'll do anything for you. And they feel that. But it's been a parallel journey. So in a way, it's been what's happening off the field, what's happening on the field. It's been the same thing. You've got to do your own work before you can think you can work on someone else, especially when it's that detail. And I, I was still in that space of being like, I've got to go out there and deal with all this fear or whatever. I haven't got time to... If someone comes over to me and says, what should we do on this? I'd just be like, just do that, do it, it'd be fine. You know, I wouldn't have the time to sit there and offer any kind of real you know, time and, and energy for anyone else. What, what about, what you were saying there probably was going to lead me to my next question, which was, and you, I'm not sure you might have answered it already when you said about, you found that there were certain things difficult as a captain. What was the biggest mistake you felt you made as a captain? I think, I mean, this is going to sound like a joke, <laughs> probably taking the captaincy. Really? I, you know, I was going to ask that because there's a number 10 as well. People always question about 10s. They've got so much to juggle. You've got your own, like you say, you've got your own thoughts. You're the quarterback. You've got everything. You've got all the team plays. Then you've got the captaincy. I always wondered, do you think 10s do make good captains? I think it's a personality thing. I think I ticked a lot of boxes visually. Performance, actually, hard work, diligence, all those things. Yeah. Hard work, all those things, looking composed. But actually, like I said, the depth of this is really interesting because when I was 18, I went up to Newcastle, I joined a changing room full of internationals, all of them probably about 30 plus, 30 or 30 plus, you know, basically every position was held by uh, an international. And it worked beautifully because you've got all these experienced guys looking after all those difficult elements of managing the game and you know and all the tactical stuff and then there's me just being able to just express that kind of energy and then I go into the England team same deal older guys everywhere brilliant experienced guys real knowledge and wisdom and what was never experienced 
or investigative as what would happen when you remove that bank of father figures almost. When those guys all headed off into pastures new, I was injured for four years. And so I didn't get a feel for it. And then I came back and suddenly I'm now one of the oldest, I'm one of the oldest guys. You've got all these young guys and the dynamic doesn't work. I cannot survive in that dynamic. I'm now, I don't know how to be one of those old guys. You know, those guys that when I looked in the change room, they were all relaxed before kickoff. I mean, back in the day, there's probably a bit of, you know, on the bus to the game, not on the game, but, you know, we joked about this. This isn't true, but to give a, a sort of slight analogy, you know, a glass of red wine on the way to the game, you know, as if it was almost that, do you know what I mean? It, it's a brilliant amateur professional crossover. They're so relaxed. They give off that amazing energy, which works beautifully with mine. But now no one's got that energy. You've got young guys looking at me going, tell us. And all I've got is that ball of energy, of intensity. I need someone above me going, it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> and I haven't got that. And now you want me to be that okay voice to these youngsters. I didn't have it in me. Like, it's what I meant about being captain of the ship. You've got to do that work before you can think. Now, what does everyone want to know? They want to know, it's okay. Yeah. Now, looking at me... <laughs> People thought that by looking at me on the field, but when you speak to me in that state, they were like, it ain't okay. This guy's given off serious, unstable vibes. And, and as a result for the youngsters, I was trying to take everything off them, not, not consciously, but every bit of anything that needed doing, I'd try and do it. So they backed off. So I would then be going, why is no one helping me? But of course, they don't know what to do. And then would take me out the team, someone else plays. Boom, it works. This is life's work. It's brilliant. This is kind of the depth, I think, that at some level needs to be understood about teams and about high-performance endeavors like sport and elite athletes, high achievers. It's mad, but that sort of intricate detail isn't there. You know, people just look and go, why is he not doing that? Why is he making these random decisions? Well, it's because you know, there's a, something going on with everyone in the dynamics and everything. So it, it's kind of funny, but in that state, I just, all I, if you could imagine someone saying, here's the captaincy of England, mm. there's no way I'm turning that down. This is another part of my perfect CV. But what I probably needed to do was to have the capacity, which I didn't have, to sort of, to say, I don't need this. I need someone else still saying to me, you know, like Martin Johnson, yeah, Johnny, knock this one over. And me being like, yes, sir. <laughs> I didn't need to be the one deciding whether we kick for goal or not. I mean, what am I supposed to do with that? I want to kick the three points, but I'm fearing failure. I want to win the game for everyone and be the saviour, but I also don't want to lose it. And now I'm captain of those decisions. You're like, that's why you need a Jono. That's why you need someone like yourself out there. And like I say, it's always difficult for number 10 when you're in those positions to be like, right, do I kick or do I not? It's like, well, it's not difficult for them if they've got a balance to their personality. But when you had mine, it was like, geez, it was a mess. Johnny was so honest talking about what he saw as his shortcomings as a captain. I thought it was really interesting how he spoke about looking up to and learning from the senior figures in the dressing room. That leads me nicely onto our next clip. Another player who inspired me as a youngster, someone I was lucky enough to play with and against on numerous times, Ireland legend Paul O'Connell. Here he is talking about being a Munster captain and how he worked with the older players. You know, I never went in there thinking I want to be captain of Munster. I went in there and there were these amazing leaders and amazing characters that I just copied. And there was a great environment that made you, you know, encouraged you to lead, encouraged you to have an opinion, encouraged you to be professional. 
And I suppose on the back of that, then by copying some of these guys, I ended up becoming, or Munster would have seen leadership potential in me. And I suppose I would have become part of the leadership group. And I actually captained Ireland before I captained Munster just for one off game when Brian O'Driscoll was injured. And, and then I ended up taking over from Anthony Foley as captain at Munster. I want to talk about Munster because there's going to be some listeners who perhaps aren't avid rugby fans, but Munster, even now, is still sort of revered that generation before you and your generation as well as a very iconic province and successful team. Who were the good people that you saw in that environment and what did they do that you probably didn't see before you got into that setter? The first captain I had would have been Mick Galway, who, when I came into the team, I was 21, he was 35 years of age. He wouldn't be what you'd imagine with a captain now. You know, I think as a captain now, you have to have a real commitment to to excellence. To you have to have a love of training and and all that. Mick Galway certainly didn't have that. He did <laughs> the least amount of training you possibly do. But he loved Munster. He loved what we stood for. He absolutely loved the lads that played with him. You know, from the old guys that were his best mates, like Peter Clossy and Anthony Foley. To the young guys that came in, you know, he loved the young guys that came in, especially if you were, you know, if you were a good player, but also if you had a bit of fun and a bit of mischief about you. And he just created this amazing environment whereby, you know, we felt that playing for Munster was the most important thing in the world because this absolute legend of Irish rugby thought it was the most important thing in the world. You know, when you go into a new school or, or, or something like that, there's a bit of a pecking order and you're trying to figure out where your place is and it might take you a year to figure out where you sit. When I went into Munster, even though the guys, to me, were absolute legends of, of the game, Nick Galway, Peter Clossy, David Wallace, Rona Garrett, Peter Stringer, all these guys, I never, ever felt like I had to figure out where I stood with anyone. I, I felt unbelievably at home from the first day I walked in the door and that was the kind of environment Mick Galway created as a captain and you know I I would have realized that I would have loved my training loved getting better so I would have realized that that was one part of the game not to copy from Mick but every other part of how he led the group and captained the group was everything you'd want to emulate as a captain even to this day. I've done a couple of games at Munster and I turn up and uh, to do commentary now, and I turn up and I just think, wow, like you said about those players making out that it felt the best place to be in the world at Munster. It seems like the fans have that as well. What did you feel was your role and responsibility as captain? Obviously, you wanted to continue that, but how did you treat the captain at Munster? Because you did it for a long time uh, and you followed all these great people. What would have been the pillars of your captaincy then while you were at Munster? What did you want to continue? And was there anything else you wanted to bring in and add to that? I probably didn't think about captaincy deep enough, um, certainly back then, uh, you know, and I know that before I came on, I know that you had discussed that you had a compass for your captaincy. And when I read that in the email, I was thinking, crikey, I I wish I'd had that. (laughs) But really, the main thing is just copying what I saw from other people and, and copying what I liked and saw. Like one of the good things and maybe one of the bad things for, from my captaincy, you know, we had Roy Keane at the time was playing for Manchester United, who, who were the biggest club in the world. He was from Munster. He used to go, go to some of our games. And, you know, he was probably one of, if not the best player in Man United. And, and he wasn't... He wasn't the best player because he 
had one or two moments of brilliance. He was their best player because he was this relentless, driven player, this relentless, driven leader that, you know, didn't accept any low standards of anyone. And he would have come and spoken to us a few times in Munster. And a lot of the leaders in Munster, we would have actually been copying Roy Keane. And it was brilliant in some ways because we were such good friends. It was pre-social media. It was at a time when there was probably a lot more drinking going on as well. There was less of a, a camera on you and what you did outside the game. So we were very, very close friends. And because of that, we could be really, really tough on each other. We felt that's what Roy Keane did. That's what we had to do. We were really, really tough on each other. And it was a brilliant way to be because we knew each other so well. But over time, the squad changed and people started socialising less and less. It became more and more professional. And I don't think that was the way to be anymore with one another. But we probably were still being a little bit tough on one another, even though we might not have known some of the younger guys in the group. And it's one of the big things, you know, Andy Farrell even would talk about with Ireland is is leadership is, you know, you've got to always ask yourself, how am I making people feel? So if, you, if you're the guy that's really tough on people, there's nothing wrong with that. You, you just have to say it in the right way and just be cognizant of how you make people feel. If you're the guy that, that says nothing but trains the house down and gives a great example, that's still brilliant because people get confidence from that. People can copy that. So that would be one of the things from that era that I really enjoyed. I enjoyed that we had such great trust in one another that we could argue and disagree and disagree agreeably and, and be quite tough on one another. I wish we'd evolved it a little bit over time and been a bit more cognizant of how we were making people feel as young guys came into the squad. So in terms of me, uh, enthusiasm was probably one of the biggest things I brought to it. I, I loved it. I, there wasn't one bit of being a professional rugby player I didn't enjoy, whether it was training, whether it was meetings, whether it was the gym, the matches. I struggled to enjoy the matches in terms of the nerves, yeah. but, but I, I did love it. Um, the night before games, the travel, staying in hotels with a group of mates, there wasn't one bit of it I didn't enjoy. So I brought that enthusiasm to the job and I think when you have enthusiasm and you love it and people know you love it you get away with a few bits and pieces you can make mistakes and people tend to forgive you because they understand your heart is in the right place I think a commitment to excellence is something you need to have nowadays as a captain you know Mick Galway yeah. was that old school captain for us but you need to lead in terms of how you prepare yourself how you help prepare the team, how you help prepare others. You need to have that commitment to excellence and having very high standards as, as an individual. I know there's all sorts of different words for it, inclusivity and stuff like that, but friendship was massive for us. We, it, In the Irish provinces, we're lucky, and, and it's probably very similar in the Welsh provinces and, and maybe less so in, in English teams and, and French teams because the transfer market is a lot more active over there. But... A lot of the Irish promises tend to stay together a lot longer. So that friendship as a group, I think, being friends with the guys, being friends with the staff, as a captain now, not as a coach, even though that's important, but it's different as a coach. But 
being friends is really important, especially if you want to, you know, if you want to help people get better. If they know that you care about them a little bit, they, they feel you enjoy their company. I think that friendship piece is really important. And 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 then finally, I think is a new it's a new word that has come into leadership recently is, is is vulnerability. You know, not not being afraid to make mistakes, not being afraid to mess up now and again, and and being able to hold your hand up and apologize and move on. I think if you try and be you know, if you try and be perfect as a leader or a captain, if you try and be really articulate all the time and you try and say the perfect things all the time, you, you, you trip yourself up. It's hard to be genuine and, and authentic if you're doing that. So I think not being afraid to make mistakes, being a bit vulnerable is, is really important. When Roy Keane came in, just wanted to just go back a little bit on that because that's really interesting. I had no idea, actually, that he was um, had any interest in rugby, uh, never mind Munster. Did, did you meet him personally or was it just a sort of thing he came and watched from afar? And if you did meet personally, was there anything that you remember discussing? No, I, I've met him personally a few times. It's funny, you know, when he was doing his uh, FIFA badges, Ireland were playing New Zealand and you had to, they had to visit another team and rather than visiting the Irish rugby team, he went and stayed a week with the New Zealand rugby team. But, but, but uh, we went out for dinner with him, myself and a few of the lads. But I remember he told Ron Nogari, he said, uh, listen, I can't tell you anything they've been saying in camp, but I can tell you one thing, they'll be coming after you. Uh, <laughs> which which every team which every team did, you know. But, uh, oh, Wales certainly did, yeah. I get yeah, much for that. Unbelievably nice guy, really articulate. You could identify with everything he said, you know. He, he, he just wanted to win. He wanted people to have the same drive as him. And I always really enjoyed him. He came and spoke to us in, in Munster one time. We were, I think we were playing Sale the next day, but... I remember a few guys were playing Monopoly when he arrived in and they, they stayed sitting around the Monopoly table because they didn't want to they didn't want the money to change or anyone to steal anything. So I think he thought that maybe they continued playing. He was a little bit insulted by that. And also we used to carb load the night before a, a game and I remember Declan Kidney used to have a saying that sometimes a bit of what's bad for you is good for you. So we were allowed to have pizzas the night before a game and he was going through this real phase at the time. He was talking about his body fat. I don't think he was eating any red meat. His body fat was down to 4%. It was oh. off the chart stuff. And and as he was talking about all this stuff, about 30 pizzas arrived into the room. <laughs> um, but it was he was talking our language. It was everything that we, that we believed yeah. we stood for. We believed at the time we were such good friends. We trusted each other so much that... We could be really tough on each other. And I know some of the, when you go on the Lions tour, some, some of the guys get pissed off at the Irish guys because they give out so much to each other. But that's you what do, we yeah. believed in. Yeah, that's what we believed in. And, and, and it's the same in the other Irish provinces. And, uh, and I think we've tempered that since we found a good balance with it. But back then in, in the Munster change room, you know, we didn't hold back on each other at training. If you didn't know stuff, we didn't hold back on one another. And people didn't take it personally. We this thing, when, whenever it did get a little bit heated, we used to have this kiss and make up where we'd all gather in a circle. I'm sure every team does it, but we'd all gather in a circle and whoever got into an argument, 
they had to kiss on the lips before training would finish. <laughs> and you probably... I didn't uh, know that. From a HR point of view, every other business in the world, you'd be in jail for it. But it was our way of saying it, it stays on the rugby pitch. It's, you Love know, that. we'll be tough on each other, but it has to stay on the rugby pitch. You can't bring it off the pitch because when you have to kiss someone on the lips, it generally ends up being a bit of a fun, a bit of a laugh. So that was an important part of what we did. I love those stories. Paul is a really funny bloke. And he had another of my quotes of the series there. Leadership is about how you are making other people feel. And it just goes to show great captains don't know everything. They learn and copy best practice from others as they go. The final clip I want to play you is from my conversation with Ryder Cup winning captain Paul McGinley. This is something I wish I focused on as a younger player, but again, can be applied to any situation, sporting or otherwise. It's all about staying positive in stressful moments and choosing to see the opportunity of success rather than being afraid of failing. Uh, I, I think on the golf course, that word adventure, I used the word adventure. That, that to me was fun. You know, we're, we're on a voyage here. We got, we got thousands and thousands of people. You know, like one of the things I used to hate, Sam, and, and, and I still do to this day, and ex-players are the best at doing it, uh, is talking about how fearful you are in the first tee and how scary it is in the first tee. And ex-players who've been through it all and retired, they're the best at telling you how scared they were. And I, it's like, I don't want to hear that. I don't want anybody talking about that. The first tee is an amazing place to be on. We're playing at home. You're going to stand in that tee and there's going to be 20,000 people around that tee. And every single one of them is going to want you to rip it down the middle of that fairway. So when it all goes quiet and you're addressing the ball, rather than thinking, oh my God, I hope I make contact. Oh my God, I'm so nervous. I just want to get it off the tee. Think, no, I'm going to smash this down the middle of the fairway. And when I do, listen for the roar. The roar, the place is going to be electric. Same when you have a putt. You know, when you've got an eight-foot putt or a six-foot putt for a half and it all goes quiet, embrace the moment. Just can't wait to hit that putt because you know you've got the power of 20,000 people around that green in your hands. Something came into my head when I played and, and I kind of brought that forward. And I remember I had it on the 16th green in the Belfry in my first Ryder Cup match. And I was playing with Darren Clark and came to the 16th hole with the last game on the course. And I had a six-footer for birdie on the 16th hole to go all square in our game. And I'm incredibly nervous. Of course, I'm nervous and your, your stomach is turning upside down. But, and it's 10 deep around the green. And as I was addressing it, something came into my head to say, Paul, this place is going to go ballistic if you can make this putt. <laughs> and standing over the, over the pot, rather than thinking, oh my God, I hope I don't let them down, I felt empowered. It's like, I can't wait. I can't wait to see the reaction. And of course, I'm hitting the putt with, with such positive adrenaline then and, and you know, positive energy. And you know, the minute I hit it, it was in the hole. And, and, and then, of course, the whole place erupts. And then I get caught up in their emotion as well, too. Really good stuff from Paul McGinley there. Great to have that positive outlook. Thanks so much to all of my incredible guests for giving up their time and speaking so honestly about their careers and leadership journeys. If you've not already, do go and check out the back catalogue. There'll be something for everyone there. If you have suggestions for guests you want me to speak to in the future, get in touch with me on captains at crowdnetwork.co.uk or by using the hashtag captainspod on social media. Make sure you are following us on LinkedIn too. There's a nice community growing there, so do get involved for extra content and leadership tips. And the biggest thanks, finally, goes to all of you for listening. It's been great getting your messages along the way. We'll be back very soon. I'll see you then. Crowd Network. A place 
where you belong. <laughs>